0: Section 11 of England Since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. Irish Affairs. O'Connell and the Whigs. 1833-1837. Part 1. From the foregoing record of fruitful legislative activity, it needs something of an effort, to turn to the Irish policy of the Whig government. But now, and for many sessions to come, Ireland filled the stage at Westminster and determined the fate of more than one ministry. In 1832, the new electorate in Ireland returned 38 repealers and 67 unionists, but of the latter, 37 favored the extinction of tithes. Thus the country, as an Irish writer points out, had declared strongly against the tithes and for the Union. The Irish executive was committed by Lord Grey to Lord Anglesey as Lord Lieutenant and Mr. Stanley as Chief Secretary. During the critical years, 1830 to 1833, the latter was the virtual ruler of Ireland, stanley was a man of brilliant parts unsurpassed in debate a vigorous administrator clear-sighted within a limited range and transparently honest but he was absolutely devoid of that insight and imagination which are essential to a statesman who governs a dependency though thrice a conservative prime minister stanley was a typical whig he was a devout and unquestioning believer in the English system of government, and firmly convinced that its adoption was alone sufficient to secure to all the various races of mankind social happiness and political contentment. To Ireland he offered this blessing in the exact spirit of Cromwell's proclamation of 1649. We come by the assistance of God to hold forth and maintain the luster of English liberty in a nation where we have an undoubted right to do it, wherein the people of Ireland, if they listen not to such seducers as you are, may equally participate in all benefits to use liberty and fortune equally with Englishmen if they keep out of arms. That any Irishman should be blind to the luster of English liberty, or slow to avail himself of liberty and fortune in an English sense, is what no genuine Englishman has ever been able to understand. And such lack of understanding is probably an important part of the equipment of a governing race. Stanley was typically devoid of it. If the Irish would keep out of arms and refuse to listen to seducers like O'Connell, all would be well. After thirty years of stagnation in domestic politics, the Englishman was about to set his house in order. If Irishmen would behave nicely, their house should be put in order too. They too should have an extended franchise and municipal self-government, a reformed poor law, and a national system of education. But the irony of the situation was, that for Whig reform of the English type, extended to Ireland with the best intentions, the average Irishman cared nothing. During the decade that followed upon Catholic emancipation, interest in Ireland was concentrated upon one question, presenting itself under various aspects. What was emancipation intended to mean? Did it mean merely the admission of a few Catholic gentry to the Parliament at Westminster or the inauguration of a Catholic administration in Ireland? Would it secure the abolition of a system under which a literal tenth of the produce of all the poorest land in Ireland went to the support of a wealthy, heretical, and alien church? What is the Irish question? asked Mr. Disraeli. One said it was a physical question, another a spiritual. Now it was the absence of the aristocracy, then the absence of railways. It was the Pope one day, potatoes the next. During the early thirties, the answer to this question was unequivocal. The Irish question was tithes. To the Irish peasant, tithe was hateful on many grounds, it was an English institution, never having been known in Ireland until the Synod of Cashel in 1175. It was a badge of Protestant ascendancy, never having been exacted until the Reformation, and it was a perpetually recurrent drain upon his scanty material resources. Thus the injury was partly material and partly moral. Tithe was at once a drain upon his purse, a seer upon his conscience. No such argument availed for the Episcopalian farmer. But the Protestants, Episcopalian and Presbyterian alike, had managed in large extent to evade the impost. Tithe was, of course, only part of a larger question. The position of the established church in Ireland was entirely anomalous. It was magnificently endowed, to put its revenues at £800,000 pounds a year would probably be an understatement. Yet despite its endowments and despite the penal legislation of the 18th century, its adherents were proportionately fewer than they had been two centuries before. In 1834, the population of Ireland was close to 8 million. Of these, 6,427,712 persons were Roman Catholics. 852,064 were Protestant Episcopalians. 642,356 were Presbyterians, while 21,808 adhered to other forms of Protestant descent. The Church of the 800,000 Protestant Episcopalians was established and endowed. The Church of the 600,000 Presbyterians was endowed but not established the church of the 6 million catholics was neither established nor endowed on an irish sabbath morning says sidney smith the bell of a neat parish church often summons to worship only the parson and an occasionally conforming clerk while 200 yards off a thousand catholics are huddled together in a miserable hovel and pelted by all the storms of heaven the immediate object of the Catholic peasant, however, was to get rid of the payment of the tithe. In 1830, war was proclaimed. Let your hatred of tithe be as lasting as your love of justice. Such was the advice of the Catholic Bishop of Kildare, Dr. Doyle. Advice of this kind rarely falls upon deaf ears in Ireland. The fuel was already gathered it needed but a spark to ignite it. By 1831, all Ireland was ablaze. Payment of tithes, says a contemporary account, was almost everywhere refused. The usual system of threats and murder was again set in motion. The clergyman dared not ask, the willing occupier dared not pay. At the end of 1831, committees were appointed in both houses to investigate the question. The committees recommended, number one, an immediate grant by government to the distressed clergy, and number two, a scheme for the extinction of tithes and their commutation for a charge upon land. On these lines, Lord Grey's government legislated in 1832 an act was passed authorizing the government to advance a sum not exceeding £60,000 to the Irish clergy and to reimburse themselves by collecting the arrears from the tithe payers. Later in the year, Stanley obtained the sanction of Parliament to a second measure, making tithe composition compulsory and permanent. Both measures were violently opposed by O'Connell, the first, he declared, would make the Lord Lieutenant tithe proctor-general for all Ireland. The second would only perpetuate abuses, while both would serve to buttress an institution which was hopelessly rotten and unsound. Meanwhile, the social condition of Ireland was going from bad to worse. The legislation of 1832 had served only to accentuate bad feeling. No tithes could be collected a widespread system of boycotting was initiated, the executive was powerless, and by the end of the year, anarchy was everywhere triumphant. Such were the circumstances under which the general election of 1832 was held. O'Connell definitely unfurled the banner of repeal, and Ireland returned forty-five members pledged to sustain him in his demands. The King's speech of 1833, after foreshadowing a tithe commutation bill and a bill dealing with the Protestant establishment, proceeded. But it is my painful duty to observe that the disturbances in Ireland, to which I adverted at the close of the last session, have greatly increased. The spirit of insubordination and violence has risen to the most fearful height rendering life and property insecure defying the authority of the law and threatening the most fatal consequences if not promptly and effectually repressed the debate on the address was bitter and protracted that crime was rife in ireland o'connell did not deny but crime was due not to agitation but to misgovernment O'Connell was answered by Stanley, and the answer of Stanley may be compressed into a sentence. A government to be loved must first be feared. Reform come coercion and undying resistance to repeal. This was the program of the ministry. On February 12th, Lord Altrip introduced into the House of Commons a bill dealing with the temporalities of the Church in Ireland, it was a large measure involving as originally drafted a considerable dose of disendowment opinion however was not ripe for the acceptance of the principle of appropriation and this part of the bill was subsequently dropped the remainder of it after a stormy passage became law two archbishoprics and eight bishoprics were suppressed first fruits and church cess were discontinued Many sinecures were abolished, some ecclesiastical incomes were reduced, and a commission to deal with the surplus revenues of the Church was appointed. But on the main question, victory rested with the Ascendancy Party. Revenues were to be redistributed, but not alienated. On February 15th, a coercion bill was introduced by Lord Grey into the House of Lords. It was admittedly of the severest character greville describes it as a consummate of insurrection gagging acts suspension of habeas corpus martial law and one or two other little hards and sharps immense powers were committed to the lord lieutenant and ireland was to be temporarily governed by martial law the debate in the commons revealed the fact that the ministry was divided as to the expediency of the measure Althorp's speech in introducing it was singularly ineffective. But Stanley, in a great speech, saved the bill. Despite the opposition of repealers and radicals, the bill became law in April. The session, however, sorely tried the cohesion of the government, and before its close, the ministry was reconstructed. Lord Wellesley succeeded Lord Anglesey as Lord Lieutenant, while Stanley was replaced as Chief Secretary first by hobhouse and afterwards by littleton footnote lord wellesley's son-in-law end footnote but stanley's promotion to the colonial office involved no change in the irish policy of the administration in opening the session of 1834 the king was able to congratulate parliament upon a great improvement in the state of ireland that his words were not merely due to official optimism is proved alike by the private correspondence of the time and by the public statistics of ireland crime and outrage had undoubtedly diminished the castle had regained the upper hand but the causes of social disorder remained against the union and against tithes the agitation was waged without remission the king's speech referred to both questions it announced such a final adjustment of the tithes as may extinguish all just causes of complaint without injury to any institution in church or state at the same time it declared his majesty's unalterable resolution to maintain inviolate by all the means in his power the legislative union the action of the ministry was unequal in resolution and consistency to the words of the king there was indeed no faltering with the question of the Union. On April 22nd, O'Connell moved for a select committee to inquire and report on the means by which the dissolution of the Parliament of Ireland was effected, on the effects of that measure upon Ireland, and on the probable consequences of continuing the legislative union between both countries. The motion was defeated by a majority of 523 to 38. In regard to the church problem, the ministry was less fortunate. The tithe question was still far from settlement, and behind the tithe question loomed the whole question of the Irish establishment. Late in 1833, Littleton had induced Parliament to vote one million pounds to the distressed tithe owners and to authorize the government to collect the arrears. Early in 1834, a bill was introduced for the commutation of tithes into a land tax payable to the state at the rate of 80 percent of their previous value. In the course of the debate, ministers were challenged on the larger question of appropriation. The challenge was variously answered by Stanley and Lord John Russell the dissension of the cabinet stood revealed to the world. Johnny, in more senses than one, had indeed upset the coach. The government agreed to the appointment of a commission to inquire into the whole question of the position of the Irish Church. On this Stanley resigned. Sir James Graham, the Duke of Richmond and the Earl of Ripon, formerly Lord Goderich, went with him. The cabinet was temporarily patched up, but their troubles were by no means at an end. Hopelessly divided on the principle of appropriation, they were still more divided on that of coercion. Stanley's Act of 1833 was to expire on August 1st. Some members of the cabinet were opposed to its renewal at any rate in its entirety. Lord Wellesley was prepared to rule without it. Littleton undertook to manage Dan. His management, however, was so clumsy as to bring the whole government down like a pack of cards. The cabinet insisted on the renewal of the coercion act. O'Connell declared that he had been tricked by Littleton. Littleton was obliged to resign. Altrip followed. Lord Grey refused to go on without Altrip, and on July ninth, his own resignation was announced. THE REFORM MINISTRY WAS AT AN END. THE GREAT SHIP HAD GONE TO PIECES ON THE IRISH ROCKS. THE IMMEDIATE CAUSE OF THE DISASTER WAS CLEARLY THE INDISCRETION OF LITTLETON. BUT THE ESSENTIAL CAUSES WENT MUCH DEEPER. THE MINISTRY AS A WHOLE HAD NO CLEAR MIND ON THE IRISH QUESTION, AND IN POLICY THEY WERE DIVIDED. For the actual course of administration, Stanley, whether at the castle or at the colonial office, was primarily responsible. With the best intentions in the world, Stanley cannot be described as a sympathetic administrator, and he was cordially disliked by the Irish members. But whatever his shortcomings, Stanley knew his own mind he cannot be blamed for not knowing the minds of Littleton, Wellesley, Altrip, and Lord John. This double-mindedness was fatal to the ministry of Lord Grey, and their failure in Ireland was neither unaccountable nor undeserved. To the general record of failure there was, however, one exception. Stanley must have full credit for having done more than any other individual, to lay the foundations of a national system of education his bill was based upon the principle of a combined literary and a separate religious education a board was to be constituted by the lord lieutenant composed partly of protestants and partly of catholics the board was to appoint teachers authorize schoolbooks and to superintend the whole system of national elementary education. Even the suspicion of proselytism was to be banished. Four days a week were to be devoted to combined moral and literary, one or two to separate religious instruction. Finally, the parliamentary grant was to be withdrawn from the Kildare Street Society and bestowed upon the national board. Stanley's act has been the basis of elementary education in Ireland from that day to this, though the whole spirit of its administration has been altered. Stanley contemplated a mixed system. To this idea, the whole genius of the Irish people, Roman Catholics and Protestants, is irresistibly opposed. And in this case, the national genius has proved itself too strong for legislative intention and enactment. Throughout the length and breadth of Ireland, with very small exceptions, the school system is today not mixed, but strictly denominational. During the last months of Lord Grey's ministry, Ireland claimed a large but not an exclusive share of public attention. Apart from Ireland, the session of 1834 was memorable on the one hand, for a great legislative achievement, and on the other, for the evidence it afforded as to the existence of a new force in English politics. With the former we shall deal presently, as to the latter a word must be said at once. The legislation of 1832, even more conspicuously than that of 1828, footnote, repeal of the Test and Corporation Acts, end footnote made the Protestant dissenter a really effective political force. It was clearly manifested in the new Parliament. Already in 1833 the House of Commons had permitted Mr. Pease, the first Quaker elected for 140 years, to take his seat on making an affirmation. In the same session an act was passed to enable Quakers, Moravians, and Separatists, on all occasions, to substitute an affirmation for an oath. In 1834, the dissenters petitioned for the exclusion of the bishops from the House of Lords, and indeed for the complete separation of church and state. A bill for the admission of dissenters to university degrees passed the Commons but was rejected in the Lords. Other bills for the relief of dissenters from church rates for the removal of restrictions upon the celebration of marriages in dissenting chapels and for the commutation of English tithes did not get so far. Few legislative achievements have had a more significant bearing upon the social and moral life of the people than the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834. For this legislation, the Whig ministers are entitled to unstinted credit. No government seeking only popularity would have touched the question. No government genuinely concerned for the social and economic welfare of the people could have evaded it. The great poor law of Elizabeth had conferred upon the indigent poor two rights, upon the impotent the right to maintenance, upon the lusty and able-bodied the right to be set on work. Appropriate to an era of paternal despotism and economic transition, the act might have wrought much mischief but for the wisdom of administrators. An amendment of 1722 imposed a salutary restraint upon careless methods of relief and virtually insisted upon the workhouse test. The last years of the 18th century witnessed a lamentable lapse from sound principles. The administrators of that day were not, however, without excuse. It was a time of economic transition, of high political excitement, and of terrible suffering among the poorest class. But the remedies applied proved even worse than the disease. They led to the wholesale pauperization of the rural laborers. Gilbert's Act of 1782 effected the first breach in good administration. Though permissive in terms, it was widely adopted, and its principles were still further enforced and rendered compulsory by the Act of 36, George III, 1796. The workhouse test was abolished, work was found for the workless, and allowances were made in aid of wages. Lax administration was even more responsible than panic legislation for the wholesale demoralization which ensued. It guaranteed to every laborer not merely his life, but a living more plentiful than he could obtain in the open labor market. It undertook that his means should increase with the increase of his family. It acknowledged the duty of saving him from suffering irrespective of his own merits or demerits. It gave practically to everybody who asked. It charged not only the weak upon the strong, but the stupid on the skillful, the lazy upon the industrious, the drunken upon the sober, the dissolute upon the chaste, the honest upon the dishonest. This terrible impeachment can be proved to the hilt from the report of the commission appointed by Lord Grey's government in 1832. The commissioners, including such men as Dr. Blumfield, Bishop of London, Dr. Sumner, Bishop of Chester, Nassau Sr., Sturges Bourne, and Edward Chadwick, arrived at conclusions which can only be described as appalling. Economic dislocation and social degradation went hand in hand expenditure which in 1701 amounted to about nine hundred thousand pounds rose in 1802 to over four million pounds and ultimately in 1818 reached the gigantic total of seven million eight hundred and seventy thousand pounds or thirteen shillings four pence per head of population outdoor relief was given in a bewildering variety of forms by providing gratuitous house-room, by money-relief in lieu of labor, by parish employment, by the roundsman system, by the labor-rate system, and most commonly of all by make-up or bread-money, by an allowance that is in aid of wages. In some parishes the poor rate exceeded twenty shillings in the pound. Farms were thrown up, land went out of cultivation, Landlords, farmers, and laborers were involved in a common ruin. The wrong inflicted upon the laborers who remained self-supporting and independent was incalculable. The debasement of the rest was matched only by their discontent. Legislation followed immediately upon the report of the commissioners, and neither came a moment too soon. The assent given to the Bill of 1834 was almost unanimous, only twenty votes were recorded against the second reading in the Commons and thirteen in the Lords. The general principle of the Act was that the situation of the person receiving relief should not on the whole be made really or apparently so eligible as the situation of the independent laborer of the lowest class. The control of poor relief was vested in a board of three commissioners upon whom immense discretionary powers were conferred. They were to have power to order the erection of workhouses, the formation of unions of parishes, and the drafting of regulations for outdoor relief. In each union the law was to be administered by a board of guardians, consisting in part of members elected by the ratepayers and in part by the justices of the peace the law of settlement was relaxed and the bastardy law amended. The core of the Act was the appointment of poor law commissioners. The first commissioners were the Right Hon. Franklin Lewis, Mr. Nichols, and Mr. Shaw Lefebvre, and it was these men who, together with their secretary, Mr. Edwin Chadwick, gave the color to the Act of 1834. The Act itself was hardly more than a cadre everything depended on the discretion of the board. For the success or failure of the act, the commissioners and their secretary, not the legislature, were responsible. They saved England from the gravest social and economic danger to which it had ever been exposed. Their work, in particular the abolition of outdoor relief for the able-bodied, and the reimposition of the workhouse test, was subjected to severe criticism. They themselves were denounced as the bashaws of Somerset House, as concentrated icicles, Tory Democrats like Disraeli, combined with radicals like Cobbett and the all-powerful Times, to assail the poor-law Bastilles, and to abuse the poor man's robbery bill. The remedies applied were indubitably caustic but not more caustic than the gravity and prevalence of the disease demanded. No rosewater surgery, to use Carlyle's phrase, could have sufficed. Financial ruin and moral degradation had stared us in the face. To have saved rural England from bankruptcy was much. It was still more to have restored to the English poor their moral dignity and economic independence. End of section 11